Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. We are the showrunners and co-creators of Billions. And this is... Behind the Billions. Behind the Billions. Where we're going to talk about how we make the show, the decisions we made in terms of uh, what we decided to shoot, how we wrote it. We are going to share the inside skinny on what it's like to make the show. Uh, Dave, I'm sorry I just said inside skinny. You did. I mean, you've set the bar high. We have a lot to provide now. And we will be providing it on Sunday nights right after the show. We'll have guests who are actors on the show will come in and talk to us, people who make cameos on the show. Should we interview crew members too? Well, we're going to talk about some crew members, maybe standout crew members, superstars, crew superstars, if you will. Really psyched to do this, psyched to talk to everybody about the show. Listen in on Sunday nights right after the show airs on Showtime. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, front of the house has always mattered to him. It's Andy Greenwald. TGIF, baby. Happy Friday. <laughs> Good bit. I like this. You road tested that bit. Me and Kaya laughed. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, the listeners get it too. It's because it's all I got. I, I am a I am a desiccated husk. It's Monday at three p.m. How was your weekend? Um, re- weekends are the days <laughs> to remind me. Oh, weekends are the days when there's no schoolwork. Yeah. Uh, it was great. How was yours? It was pretty good. I watched a bunch of ocean movies yesterday for the big picture, an episode that's okay. coming out tomorrow. Top five movies set in the on the sea. So my wife and I watched some ocean movies. Um, oh, by the way, when you said ocean movies, I assumed you meant Steven Soderbergh's classic trilogy of dapper conmen. Yeah, those are always on repeat. No, I watch movies set on the sea, you know, like waterbound movies. Chris, famously, your hottest take is about the sea. It's so not that high of a take, right? I mean, the sea is dope. In, what, what year was that? 2012? When did you, when did you drop that I think gem? It was, it was like 13, maybe? I don't know. Well, I just feel like back then... It, that was pretty that was that was pretty takey. Yeah, that was also like big Somali pirate era. So people were out on the sea, you know. <laughs> Real Captain Phillips times, you know. Speaking of, and and I you know, I don't want to take I away zagged. From, I don't want to take away from your weekend, but one thing we've been one thing that's become a source of a lot of interest in my household, uh mostly coming mostly coming from my my older child, but I don't want to just just say it's from her, is a lot of interest in the ancient Roman Empire. <laughs> and so I'm learning a lot, a lot of what do we call them? Factoids. Uh-huh. Fun. You know, you know that there's that website heavy that I don't understand what it is. I assume it's some sort of like Macanese based front for gambling or something. Oh, so I don't it's know like what 23 things you didn't know about the Roman Empire. But generally, it's like if someone is milkshake ducked that morning within 20 minutes, that website will be the first Google result being like top five things you need to know about the racist milkshake duck. Yes. Anyway. The Julius Caesar one would be fire. And that guy packed a lot of living into 55 years (laughs) in the ancient world. Let me tell you, one of the best bits was he kept kept coming back to Rome, taking over, then having to flee. He had to flee all the time. Yeah. But then he kept coming back, like, you know, with more more dudes and, and bigger power and eventually taking over the Senate and the Republic. But the detail that I'm super into, and I and, and I immediately went there since you started talking about the sea, is that there is just a little footnote in his very, very long biography that mentions that at one point during his adventures in Hispania, 
Gaul. Sure. He was kidnapped by pirates. And the pirates were like, this guy, this guy looks looks rich. He looks pretty powerful. We're gonna put a, a bounty on his head. We're gonna, you know, we we're, we're gonna get a uh, what do you call it when you kidnap someone? You demand ransom. Ransom, yeah. So they were like, we're gonna get twenty pieces of silver for this. You team. learned all of this from heavy. No, no, heavy <laughs> doesn't have one. I'm saying, oh, okay, pre- old world heavy would be great. Yeah, that those are. Called I could be books. that. That's books. I've got a I've got an interesting business proposition for you. Anyway. I bet our listeners are loving this. Um, they were like, we're going to get 20 pieces of silver for this dude. And Julius Caesar, the prisoner, was like, that's a fucking insult. You asked for 50. <laughs> and so they were like, oh, okay. He went full okay. Mel Gibson. Yeah. And he was like, by the way, just so you know, you should do this. You should get all your money. But I'm going to come back once I'm free and I'm going to crucify all of you. And they were like, this guy... <laughs> This fucking guy right here. You were serious about that? Julius. Listeners? Yeah. Did he crucify him? Yeah, he did. (laughs) He went out and he found the pirates that had him. And as an act of mercy, he had all their throats slit before he crucified them. But he did it. That's such a And I just feel like, look, I know we're in a different era. I know we're in an era where politicians have to do their business from their basements. Mm Mm-hmm. But all I'm asking for, look, the left, the right, he said, she said, I want people who follow through. That's my campaign for 2020. Uh, I want to I follow up on this, for, but briefly, if you're just tuning in and you didn't expect uh, r- Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire today. What if you are the co-host of the podcast and you didn't expect that? Chris, you can I speak think to that. Th- the funny thing is neither of us expected it. Uh, today we are going to be talking about a little bit about Top Chef in a bit, and then the second half of the podcast, I had really a, a Hall of Fame guest for this pod, Catherine Hahn, one of the stars of I Know This Much Is True, which is a new limited series on HBO, uh, adapted by Derek C. and France from the Wally Lamb novel, and it is, man, it is pretty searing. Uh, it, it's it's like definitely like I remember when we were talking about zero 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 before, and I was like, it's hard for me to like recommend this as a hang. But as right. a watch, watching, you know, this is like full flight Mark Ruffalo. He's playing two roles. He plays twin brothers. And it's about, I mean, it's essentially just, it's a show about trauma. But if you have the appetite for like that Blue Valentine kind of place beyond the pines level of, um, you know, searing, in, searing human behavior, this is really, I can't recommend this more highly. It's pretty, it's pretty stunning stuff. But we'll talk about that with Catherine Hahn later. But back to Caesar. Briefly. Who is Catherine Hahn's favorite Roman Empire? Roman That's a Emperor. great question. But how long did Caesar live for? He's 55 years. Yeah, that was it. That was it. He poured it, man. He poured it on. Like, that's the thing about guys back then is they were just like, life expectancy was so low. Mm-hmm. And you have to add on to the fact that like, when they were like, you know what? Summer break. I think I'm going to go on mm-hmm. safari, right? That took like mm-hmm. two years. Two That's years to do shit. That's even the case for like Henry James novel characters where they're just like, I'm going to Paris. See you in three <laughs> years. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? How is that I, a plan? <laughs> I'm just saying, when Caesar was like, I'm going to go to Great Britain and try to conquer it twice, what percentage of his 55 years on the planet did that take? Yeah. And then there's the whole pirate thing, which is a whole other story. Then you got to go I, back and crucify those guys. I, I just feel like we're... Wa- I know. 
I just feel like we're wasting our time because the player efficiency rating, shouts to John Hollinger for these ancient figures, is extremely high. Now yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna quiz you on something. Okay. You ever heard of a little lady called Cleopatra? Yeah, man, of course. Cast a long shadow. Look at us. We're still talking about her. It's 2020. Guess how old she was? Like when 30, she like 30. She was 39. Okay. So so she was a little older than you expected. She outlived Janice Joplin. <laughs> I'm sure that was of great comfort to her as she positioned the asp over her own neck. She's like, wait, how did Cleopatra go out? Suicide by snake poison. What? Is this well known? This is, we are doing a full pivot to history. When the TV shows end in like six to eight weeks, we are pivoting. Kaya, did you know that's how Cleopatra went out? Uh, no, I don't think I did know that. There you go. Greenwald, you really are getting good at teaching. Chris and Kaya and all of my children <laughs> and my students. <laughs> why do we venerate the false idol George R.R. R. Martin when our friend Encyclopedia Britannica has for years contained yeah. the fact that yeah. Julius Caesar ran off on his fourth wife, had a child with Cleopatra. Do you know what that child's name was? Caesarion! <laughs> Wait, how do you know all this? Is it, are you actually teaching this to your kid? She was really interested, so you gotta, you gotta pivot. That's awesome, man. I love it. Caesarion, though, uh, he was like, bet, I'm the pharaoh and I'm the emperor of Rome. And you know what people in Rome said? <laughs> Please meet this rope we will use to strangle you at age 17. That's a wrap on Caesarion. <laughs> wow. So, was he a, is is uh so I mean like do you feel like this is going to be a long term project for you guys or do you think you're going to be like channel flipping around history? I, I at this point we're channel flipping as things get interesting, but I I do want to say I was going to mention that I thought that was kind of a cool flex because people were like that's not really Julius Caesar's son, we don't need to recognize him, but Cleopatra was like I'm going to name this child Caesarion, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like that's kind of a cool flex for the from the from the ancient world and then just before signing on to this podcast i was reading about um future you know uh the the the, 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 the multi-platinum yeah. yeah sure uh rapper who had an interesting mother's day as he sent happy mother's day tweets to his six or seven baby mamas mm -hmm. and his children have names like hendrix and prince future <laughs> So I feel like we haven't really traveled that far. Time <laughs> is a flat true. circle. That's true. Is there anything else you wanted to hit before we got into Top Chef? Because really thought, the only TV news to come out was the kind of the press push by Quibi, which we had touched on briefly right. as, a, as a kind of like a curioso when it first launched. We were like, you know what? They're probably not there yet with the content, but I'm curious because mm -hmm. they are hiring a bunch of interesting people and they're trying to, and they're trying to like sort of flesh out this new this new platform and this new format with the the landscape and also the the horizontal and the vertical cinematography bit and it was supposed to be for phones then obviously first two weeks numbers weren't great they immediately pivot so that they're like okay now you can watch it elsewhere besides just your phone and then today jeffrey katzenberg who's one of the people behind quibi with meg whitman comes out in the new york times has a kind of a damage control interview Yep. Essentially chalking up the issues with Quibi's reception to coronavirus. Now, obviously not saying like 
were it not for coronavirus, Quibi would have become the new Netflix. But I think very specifically was pointing to the idea that Quibi was something that people were supposed to be doing these in-between moments, whether it was sitting in their car, like as they were waiting in the grocery mm-hmm. store parking lot or online or in the subway or wherever. Um, and that, that taking that out essentially like, you know, for the for lack of a better term, crippled them. Now, I don't think he's wrong. You know, I think that he's he's probably right. I mean, I think that that the disruption of what we thought we knew about how people ingested culture and content mm-hmm. has been shattered. And as we've kind of been discussing on this podcast for the last couple of weeks, like the things that you used to do at a certain point in the day, the things that you used to do on your drive to and from work, you know, you, you yourself were like, I used to have like a 90 minute commute. I could get all sorts of stuff done in that mm-hmm. car. And now you don't. Mm-hmm. But do you think that Katzenberg's kind of uh, defense here sounds right? Or do you think that there's something fundamentally off about the Quibi model? Well, I think both can be true. You know, and, and I think that the first point I think is accurate, which is this is a service that was specifically targeted for the type of viewing opportunities that simply don't exist right now. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's That's just without question true and a valid point to make. Now, whether they should have gone ahead with their launch in early April you know, as things were completely shutting down is another question. But I also think the fact that we're asking that question kind of speaks to the second point, which makes me feel with some confidence that there would be a similar damage control story about Quibi's launch happening regardless, which is the fact that it appears, the entire business model appears to be an attempt to service a niche that may not need servicing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the already one of the one of the pull quotes from this times piece that just dropped you know an hour or two ago uh, that already seems to be doing the rounds is people asking well okay if Quibi does isn't working why is TikTok soaring and and Katzenberg uses that famous analogy that's like comparing apples to submarines right which seems like a poor idea in business <laughs> so I'm with him on that but I think that one of the things that this moment has really revealed is the almost binary extremity of what we want from entertainment in this moment, which is to say the very idea of Saturday Night Live producing an entire 90-minute show on people's iPhones, uh, the idea of talk shows happening from people's attics or basements, the idea that um, perfectly acceptable, high-gloss, high-budgeted programs would be reduced to what our podcast is at this moment, which is just two people with headphones on chatting with completely unconsidered backgrounds behind them in their homes, that has really rewired a lot of assumptions about what people are willing to get and what people really want from stuff. And so I feel like there's an appetite for something that just fills the need, two people talking about something you're interested in, self-generated videos of people dancing, as is the case with TikTok, or a desire for the biggest possible thing, which is why, you know, regardless of how movie theaters fare for the next year and a half, I think that movie theater spectacle like Wonder Woman 1984 or the Fast and the Furious movies are fine. What Quibi seemed to try to do is fill a small space with a medium-sized thing, mm-hmm. right? Because they're not cheap shows, even if they're shorter. They're shot with real, real is a silly term, but they're shot with proper crews, you know, sure. and with, with relatively big actors. They're not cheap to make. The scale that they're making them at is the same as any other network show. It's just that they're being chopped up into smaller pieces. So, so what, that's what's most striking to me about it. And, and that seems to me to, 
that that it's it strikes me that that might have been a problem regardless although there may have been a longer runway for them to say we're still building when we weren't in an economic catastrophe to the extent that Jeffrey Katzenberg or Quibi or anybody needs my sympathy at this moment i actually do have a bit of it for the situation because i think that we're going to see it i would i guess in the next couple months with peacock and hbo max to some extent even though those two services are going to launch with these libraries and with shows baked into them that people are going to be like, yeah, I would probably pay X amount of dollars per month just to have friends playing in the background of my house all the time yeah. um, or the office or whatever. I still think that judging the launch of a platform like this as if it's uh, we're judging the box office returns of a weekend movie is probably ill-considered. I mean, when yeah. you think about the ones that are actually pumping and working right now, Netflix and Hulu, they've gone through huge changeovers of terms of what they yeah. are supposed to be. Like, Hulu was essentially first going to be where you watched network TV the day after or the couple of days after. And since then, has gone on to become pretty impressive archive and library of a lot of television, plus a very, very efficient way to watch current day television, plus an original programmer to be reckoned with in their own right, both on the Hulu side and on the FX on Hulu side. Netflix starts out as a mail-order DVD company, then becomes an online movie com- like library, and then becomes an original content company to what it is now, which is it seems like whatever comes out on Netflix Friday is the thing that people are talking about on Monday, be it Dead to Me or whatever. So the idea that any of these places are going to launch and immediately have that brand identification, that sense of reliability, and that sense of, oh, I want to see whatever is on this thing because I trust that it's good or I trust that it's mm-hmm. worth my time. It's going to take years. And if they're that leveraged and they're that, they're that splashy, I don't know if they have years. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think the Hulu um, reference is especially apt because I think Hulu surprised the entire town and certainly itself when it became the first streaming service to win a series Emmy for Handmaid's Tale. And the year or two after that, you could feel them just being like, well, what, what are we, are, are we making, remember there was the, the 11, 22, 63 miniseries with James yeah. Franco. Like, are we doing these high price adaptations? Are we going to be mass market with comedy? I mean, it, it was very unclear what they were going to be. And in the last few months, you know, we've suddenly started talking about them a lot because they made a lot of canny programming choices and have positioned themselves really well. The unique challenge of Quibi in any time period is that, and now I know this is an uh, inaccurate analogy because both examples I'm about to use, I think are essentially software. I'm, I'm, I'm not was, I didn't build anything in my garage, so I could be wrong about this, but I, <laughs> but they are trying to be hardware and software. They are trying to be both the razor and the razor blade. Yes. In that they're like, you have to have our bespoke app to watch the programs that we are programming for it. That's different than even though Netflix, obviously w- once it became, you know, a streaming service or a devoted streaming service, that was a different interaction or interface for people who were used to either getting DVDs or watching uh, cable this is another step past that. And one wonders if there hadn't been a better um, lane for Quibi to say, take this technology, take this idea, take the relationships that Katzenberg has with people in Hollywood and basically offer themselves as an adjunct service to Netflix, say, Mm -hmm. where these are quick Netflix bites. Micro, yeah. You can watch them on your Netflix app, but you could also watch them on your phone in a way that is optimized for watching them that way, as opposed to trying to watch, you know, a a beautifully shot moment from Narcos or whatever on your iPhone. 
So yeah, yeah. that's a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda. I mean, Katzenberg has taken big swings his whole career. That's what he does. And the fact that he got this thing up and running with the talent attached to it is remarkable. It's 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 fascinating. I wonder whether or not, I don't know what, I have some ideas about what data collection in this era is going to be like, but I wonder what Nielsen there is or what, how how do you even adjust for what people are doing with their time and what they are choosing to do with their quote unquote free time while they're home like this. And while they're, while they're, while they're forced to kind of like contemplate another night in another night in another night in and whether or not that has an impact on what people, the decisions people are making going forward. Uh, Cause Quibi, I think is essentially supposed to be something in transit. If mm-hmm. it's just going to be micro gosh, I don't know. I don't know if it can compete with Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Because that those things already feel like they're programmed to live in your pocket and be yes. the quick distraction. I, I I wonder, and I'm sure there are people much smarter than us involved in every step of the decision making process for these companies. But I think you're really onto something there, which is to say that in the in between moments, such as they even exist in this time, Instagram Stories brain erasure, yeah, is is the real competition for something like Quibi. It's not the new episode of Defending Jacob on the Apple TV app on my phone. It's mm-hmm. what are six friends I haven't seen in two years doing. Right. Um, right. Two, two yeah, years I meaning mean, because they're, it's not socially distant. These are people I fully don't even know. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. That is interesting. If you start to centralize all, if you start to centralize, a, like you do everything on, whether it's your laptop or your Apple TV or your, uh, your phone, but that's also where you do a lot of your interactions with the outside world. And that's also right. where you look at Instagram or that's also where you watch golf instructional videos or cooking instructional videos on YouTube. It feels different than the discrete choice to watch TV. And when yes. you get into that territory of like, oh, this is also where I do my group texts. Like group texts are taking up a lot of my time. I know that. You know what I mean? My, my group chats are like... Uh, I'm right here. <laughs> Dude, like, we're we're on a couple. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> I guess you must be talking to those people on Instagram stories. <laughs> um, should we get into? I like how uh, we went from two guys definitely didn't know anything about Cleopatra. Yeah, and being really irreverent with one of the most important figures in world history to yeah. two guys being really serious about Quibi for five minutes. This what is, do you want to? W- did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Not to that, but I did think it was worth saying since you were talking about, you know, the time we're taking to watch TV, just shout outs to some, I don't know if you have some to, to throw into this, but, you know, we're kind of between shows at the moment because normal people is, is over and we'll pick up one or two things, I'm sure, in the next week or two. But there, I, I've, I've done some core watching and mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, and, and just some things that I, I would shout out and discuss. I, I bet you have a couple things as well before we get into the Top Chef. One is if you have uh, both of these at are relatively short, uh, 90 minutes, 60 minutes. First one is a doc on Netflix called Circus of Books that I really, really recommend. It's about a famous or infamous, however you want to look at it, um, bookstore in West Hollywood and then for a, a later period also in Silver Lake called Circus of Books that was a, became a basically a haven for the gay community um, during the 80s, during the AIDS scare, during the 90s sold books, but also like sex toys and community more than anything else. And totally fascinating. As a relatively recent transplant to Los Angeles, I didn't 
know the history of this place. But I promise you, even if you had seen the store, even if you had shopped there, you probably didn't know the couple, the very mild-mannered Jewish couple, husband and wife, that owned and ran the stores. And it's a really heartfelt and interesting documentary made by the couple's daughter, Rachel, and features a wonderful appearance by an old friend of ours from New York, um, Fernando Aguilar, who used to work at the store. So I... I really recommend it. It's a really fascinating documentary and a lot of fun. Also, and maybe this is worth mentioning on a day when we're also mourning the loss of the great Jerry Stiller. Uh-huh. Uh, wife and I watched the new Jerry Seinfeld special last night. How is that? Fascinating. Did you say wife and I? Yeah, the wife <laughs> and I. I feel like I'm I, I'm transitioning into you know a little bit older school sure. style of delivery here, as as befits it. It it's re, it's a really solid B. That guy really knows how to do a stand-up special, you know, and it's it's enjoyable. It's very him. Um, what's kind of amazing about it, and I wonder how many more things like this we'll see and talk about, is that there are sections of it that feel so much different than they did when he filmed it, which mm-hmm. was probably only a month or two ago. I'm sure that will come up beacon. a lot. Yeah. he. There's a whole thing in the beginning about how, like, all we do as people is basically find excuses to leave the house and get together to kill time. And now, like, no one's really that happy doing anything ever. Uh, so that was kind of fascinating. There was a part that took on an air of just full tragedy as he was making fun of the U.S. Post Office's business model. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they should, they should cut this. We should do, they should just remove this part because <laughs> it's no longer funny. Uh, and then there's a whole section about how the buffet is like hum- the failure of humanity. And I was like, well, I think it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you could put this joke in a time capsule with a poison snake and Cleopatra's illegitimate heir to the Roman throne Caesarion and just toss it because it's never going to be relevant. Do you again. hear people like cracking up when he does that bit? Like, is it, does it they, kill? It kills. Yeah. Oh, they love it. Oh my God. I mean, the, one of the things, and, I, and, I, and I'll say this to people who may, maybe don't have the appetite for Jerry Seinfeld comedy specials in the year 2020. It is kind of incredible to watch a guy who just loves doing one thing more than anything else. He just loves doing that. Yeah. It's just what he really likes doing. And I, and I, at, at this point in my life as a quarantined elementary school teacher, I really admire that. I find there's something kind of moving about a dude who's just like, this is the only thing I really like doing. And even though I am richer than 99.2% of Earth's population, I'm still going to do this. Uh, I wanted to recommend two things, actually non-TV or movies. So one is a book. Uh, it's been a while since we've done Double Down Book Club, but we've mentioned yeah. a bunch of stuff in the past. Uh, I wanted to say that Andy had brought up a bunch of times over the years Jean-Claude Izzo's Marseille yes. trilogy, and I read Total Chaos, and that was incredible. So if you're looking for a really transporting European adventure, it's very it's very atmospheric. It's really great. It's set in Marseille. It's, it features this hard-bitten cop trying to untie a murder from his own past and a, and a murder from his present. And it, it's just an incredible crime saga. It's great. So total first, chaos. First book, the first of, the book of the trilogy. Too. Yeah. But the one that I'm reading now that I really like, and I think a lot of our listeners might dig is called safe by uh, Ryan Gaddis. Who's oh, a, I love this book. Yeah. We and never talked about it. It's a 2017 novel. And it, it's basically about these two guys. It has like elements of heat to it, but it's, um, a guy who's a safe cracker for law enforcement agencies and goes around and when they need like a safe opened up in a drug stash house, he's the person they call. Uh, and then there's another guy who is a dealer 
and uh, it's kind of like the colliding paths that they're on, the 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 roads that they're on that will inevitably collide. And it is an awesome, awesome depiction of like contemporary Los Angeles crime culture. Not that I'm an expert on it, but it it's very convincing, and it's got this real vibe of like all the places in LA that I drive by where I'm like, huh, San Pedro, you know, and I've never gotten off there, you know, but like it's, it's all, it's set in all of these like counties and and towns that ring Los Angeles or kind of circle out from it, but still feels like an LA crime book. So that's, that's really good. Did you do the podcast with me when Ryan was on the pod for all involved for his first book? He's, he's he's a great guy. We should, if we want to, get a book club going. He would, I'm sure would love to hop back on with us. Yeah. But so I, I highly recommend that. And then the other thing that I've been listening to, so I kind of needed to switch the curatorial part of my brain off this weekend. For mm. some reason, I was just like, I don't really want to make decisions about whether I'm listening to this or that. And someone, uh, a guy I met recommended this thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of this called NTS. And it's basically, I, I guess it's like internet pirate radio and they've got stations in London, LA, Manchester, Shanghai, but they're obviously the stations are closed, but the shows are still going. They're still being uploaded, these DJ sets. And they vary, man. Like some of it is like, you know, some dude wearing a mask and it's called like Japan Wax. And it's just like, all right, mate, his burial. It's called State Forest. Big rhythms. And then it's just like blast. Like he just plays dubstep for like an hour and a half. Some of it is like, random psychedelia like but it's like these all these djs uploading their radio sets and it it's curated and put together as if it's like a radio station playing all day you can listen to one of two channels one's playing usually from la and one's from london and you can really get lost down the rabbit hole and it's kind of awesome i like i spent the entire weekend jamming out to it that sounds great i want to do that I'm probably not going to mention that I'm now on page 391 of the Magic Mountain, which is my quarry read. <laughs> and I've actually kind of enjoyed reading something that I'd never read that felt like a big thing that one should maybe give a shot to. And it's actually, for this moment, it's good in two ways. One, because it, it's about sickness as a social construct, so uh-huh. it's relevant. Um, two, I'm finding chipping away slowly at something and seeing that it is actually getting done to be kind of helpful yeah, in sure. this time in a different way than at the beginning when I think I was rereading a lot of books um, for the comfort of that and the familiarity because I knew where and how they ended. Now you want the project. This is a, a little bit more of a lesson that even if I'm only able to read you know, seven or eight super dense pages about the device called the Blue Peter, which gentlemen carried around in their pocket to ejaculate sputum into from their <laughs> from their ill lungs and then tuck them back into their waistcoats or whatever uh a little of that goes a long way uh of the pages do do add up and it did also lead to one of my all-time favorite conversations with my parents who are also of course sheltering in place yeah well no i i they, my father said well have you been reading anything and i said actually i've been reading the magic mountain and my mother said oh thomas mann my father says, well, first of all, it's Mon. <laughs> so if anybody ever wondered where I came from, <laughs> there it is. Let's talk these restaurant wars, man. So we're going to get into oh a God. Top Chef from last Thursday. Skip ahead to Catherine Hahn if you haven't watched it because we're going to spoil Top Chef restaurant wars. Um, but if you are a Top Chef fan and you haven't watched Thursday's show by Monday, come on. Yeah. Come on. I mean, I was, I was under pressure. I felt pressured to watch this because uh, I, I, I was shocked you hadn't watched it. The reason yet. why I felt like I had to watch it was because AG yeah. 
logged on to Twitter and had a great tweet about this. And you were talking about, let's, let's start at the most crucial moment here, which may have been the selection of teams. So for everybody who doesn't know, Restaurant Wars, obviously, two chefs are, uh, well, in this season, two chefs won a pre-pitch competition where they were a, a pitch competition where they went in and pitched the uh, judges on their concept for a restaurant and made a couple of sample dishes. And the two chefs who won were Kevin and Gregory. Kevin wanted to do a kind of Southern homestyle comfort food, but refined, you know, casual, but refined. Uh, he wanted to do a casual, but fun restaurant called uh, Country Captain, right? And it was based on this chicken dish that's almost like a chicken curry, but... That, that came from, where did it come from? His plantations. Yes. And then Gregory cool. wanted to do Khan, which was his... Haitian fine dining concept that he, I think, is in the you know in the process of wanting to open a restaurant like that in Portland. So it's obviously yeah. something that's very important to him. And what happens is it's basically playground style. You get to pick your team back and forth, back and forth. So, you know, it, it's incredible sometimes when you think that this is the 17th season of the show, and I believe all of them. And by the way, this is all of them, including Top Chef Masters of which I saw every episode, Top Chef Junior, of which I've seen every episode. This is the hallmark. This is the one they do every year. And it's the one that the chefs either, they used to make a big deal like, it's the one you've been looking forward to, but now I think it's the one they're dreading because it's just it's just a buzzsaw. Regardless of what happens and the shifting outcomes and whether they choose flowers or the decor or whether they're charged with less of that, whatever, there's one constant, which is you yourself at home can pick the order of the teams yes. along with the chefs because as you said it is playground style and so what that means is just like on the playground it is they take best player available always always the only exception to that and it's happened a couple times is when the person choosing has a history with someone and right. they've worked together before or they're close friends and in those cases you will see uh, a captain of a team pick someone who is a grinder, basically. That's my like, roommate. They're the, a great like, sous chef. I know that they'll right. execute all this stuff. They will yeah. trust me. They will defer to me. And they are a prep lord. Like, right. they will just crush the mise en place for this restaurant. Right. So, okay. So, they draw knives. Kevin goes first. And what? And Kevin, uh, like I was no, sketching Gregory, out. Picks, Gregory went first. No, Kevin went first and picked Brian Voltaggio. Did he? Which made, okay. yes, which made sense. For the reasons I'm saying, they they were on Top Chef together in the Las Vegas season. Right. And Brian's like, I will die for this guy. Like, we made a promise to each other that we were going to go to the finals, yada, yada. And they're they're generationally aligned. And Brian Voltaggio is is a beast in the kitchen, both in terms of his skills and, well, in terms of his, his craft and his skills. Mm-hmm. So then it's Gregory's turn. And it's completely obvious. Vegas was choose. not taking bets. This is the easiest decision possible. Yeah. The person who is been the MVP of this season, other than himself, the person who is his roommate, we learn, in the Top Chef house, easily the best person available. And Kevin would have felt the same way, obviously, and he did, and that's Melissa. And what Gregory does in this moment, I swear to God, this was the most shocking moment in 17 seasons of Top Chef. He chose malarkey. I mean, I can't even find an analogy for this because malarkey would have been the odds-on favorite to be picked last, to be the person you were stuck with who has never even played kickball before, yet is being forced to play by the teachers who want to include him in the games. So there's something crucial to recognize here. 
in the pitch contest, even though most people at home probably found Brian's pitch to be stupid or not even stupid, but just kind of like, okay, that's it's corny. Yeah, he went and pitched a Baja Asian street food concept using Shrek characters or based on like Shrek, the movie, and did this whole song and dance. And you know what? Those discerning people sitting at the table lapped it up. Yeah. And they were like, he did it. He sold that the shit out of that. And I don't know. So like they don't obviously do a lot of like post-game Top Chef stuff as far as I know. Like Survivor, you will see, um, you know, Jeff Probst will do interviews that go out like after the Survivor episodes goes and it'll break down some of the strategy, sometimes give a little light onto like moments that maybe weren't showed or why it was put together in the way it was. So I don't really know in the room whether or not Gregory was like, I am picking forefront of the house. He but was. He, he, he did was. say that, yeah. But like, I don't know whether he was like, no matter what, I'm taking Malarkey first because I want him to do front of the house. I think that he was going to and that's what I'm so shocked by. And you know, generally... Padma is an observer here. We don't, or they cut it to make it seem like she is. They cut to her being like, I have to ask you why you just did that. Yes. Like Malarkey's standing right there. And yes. she's like, what are you doing? And he so, essentially, what, if, if Gregory is, it's like, it's like he basically passes on, I, I don't know, like Clay Thompson. You know what well, I mean? Like he could, yes. have, he could have had the perfect complimentary player in Melissa, but he understood I am going to be obsessed with cooking this. And I can't worry about people. I need someone out front doing a song and dance to keep people chill. It's not just that, though. It's that when you look at how it shook out, this is what was so stunning. And it it did for a moment maybe occur to me that there was going to be a David Goliath thing here because when it shook out, when they went, you know, they alternated picks, Kevin's team you could make a case that that would be your uh, Restaurant Wars team if you had a draft from all the seasons of Top Chef. This is Kevin, who is up to this point been unstoppable and has been and is one of the best and most successful. And was a finalist in Vegas, yeah. Cooks ever to be on the show. Brian Voltaggio, the only one to be on regular Top Chef and Masters, and now back. Uh, Melissa, who he ends up with after the Malarkey decision, who is the odds-on favorite to win the season and is also just a beast and a genius and Karen who's extremely talented a beard award winning chef and it just come back from being in last chance kitchen where she like lost in the regular kitchen went to last chance and beat two people and so Gregory is standing over there with Brian Malarkey who is and Stephanie who would be everyone's picks to be the next two to go home no disrespect to them it's getting fierce the competition and Leanne who is extremely talented but also has been at the bottom repeatedly it is a complete mismatch and then you start to think well, okay, okay, maybe, you know, if you are just doing playground rules and you just pick the best people available, does that the same thing as picking a team, right? Right, like, the I, what is the NBA equivalent here, though, of, like, Gregory being so confident in his own ability to lead an offense and score that he picks Kyle Korver first? No, it, I, you know what I, I mean? I mean it's just someone I, who's good at one thing? But I didn't even know he was that good at it. I don't even know if it's a sports thing. It's, it's more like team of rivals. It's more like picking a bunch of people the thing that he did that was ingenious was that he not only was like, because Stephanie said this, she was like, Gregory is not looking for our input. And it's like, it's actually easier to do it this way because yes. I am not going to ruin Gregory's dish. I'm going to follow a recipe. And Kevin told his people, bring your own vibe to this. And like the shrimp and grits, like Voltaggio probably made a really good shrimp and grits meal in a vacuum, but within the context of the way too elaborate and and. Yeah, like and 12 and, side dishes. Right. That that Kevin put on his menu, 
that Voltaggio shrimp dish didn't quite work, right? Like, at least according to the judges. Right. None of the people on Gregory's team were like, I want to try it this way. It was like, Gregory's going to tell you what to cook. He's going to tell you how to cook it. He's going to taste everything. He's going to make three dishes, which is very hard. And Malarkey's job is to literally go out there and wear a hat and be like, chaos, you know, it's con- controlled chaos, baby. Like, I, it's chaos behind the scenes, but it's all under control here. And always going up and telling his stories and like greeting everybody and doing a great job and not having to run back and do mushrooms like Karen or whatever. And it was like, it was an ingenious way to do it. Which doesn't the, mean I, what it, it sounded a- like it meant. No, but it was also... Cook, cook mushrooms, not do them. Do them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Karen was microdosing the whole time. Yeah. It's a no, wonder uh, that they got any food on the plate. But I, I, I did feel like he picked for need yeah. rather than best player available. But also it showed like, I mean, you, you, you ever since we've made, made my year by talking about Top Chef on our podcast, like I, I've been beating the same drum, which is to say that the gamesmanship part of it is the least interesting part. But he broke the game in this one for me. This yeah. was totally incredible because he had the confidence in his vision, the confidence in his leadership skills, which are considerable. You know, everybody likes him. He keeps a very cool, calm uh, demeanor. And that speaks also to the sort of generational change and temperamental change of cooking in America over the last few years. And he represents that really well. But he was, as as you have said, and I think people on Twitter responded to say, like, he was really confident in what he wanted to do. It's very personal. So he knew what it was going to be and he knew what, how to delegate it. Malarkey proved to be pretty good at doing the hardest part of restaurant wars, which is the thing most chefs are not good at. Mm-hmm. And Kevin, despite having been a veteran of the show and despite having opened many successful restaurants, made every single mistake. So it was truly thrilling. Like I was high after watching the show. I, oh, I, I mean, it was th- everything from when he, uh, Gregory replaced Leanne as the expo yes. cook for, with Stephanie. Every decision Gregory was forced to make, he made right. You know, and even when they were like judges' table, like you need to finish this fish, he was like, "The fish is going to take as long as it takes. I'm not serving them raw fish." Or that he didn't serve the dishes he served to get uh, the captaincy. Right? He switched right. up the dishes. All these decisions he made. This is why it was like sports, I guess, because there were split second decisions made that felt absolutely insane, except nobody's going to remember the moment before you threw the Hail Mary if someone catches it. Right. So now afterwards, we're like, oh, it was brilliant because he he didn't fall prey to expectations like Kevin's dish did when he didn't have the right curry blend or whatever. So all of that was awesome. Gregory is a hero, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. One of the best Top Chefs, one of the best restaurant episodes ever, following one of what I thought was one of the worst, one of the best restaurant wars ever. Then it, I, I also want to call out, Kevin, bury him a G. <laughs> because that's also something you never see. And the veteran savvy that was lacking in his decision-making for his restaurant was very present in his exit. Yeah. It was starting the- to, and it was starting to go a little sideways where I felt like, you know, Melissa and Brian were not, they weren't throwing Kevin under the bus, but they were definitely like, look, this was way too ambitious. And, and Karen felt it coming too for her yeah. screwing yeah. up front of the house and mushroom dish. And Kevin said something that you never see on reality shows, let alone Top Chef, where he was just like, Every single thing is my responsibility. And there's really no other choice here. They didn't even pretend there was another choice. They were like, is there any reason anyone other than you should go home? And he was like, no. Yeah. They're like, well, you have to go home. I mean, and the only alternative would have been to be like, yeah, Karen should go home. Because if people were sitting and turning over better, it would have been a different experience. But I think the perspective that you get as a veteran, knowing that 
the goodwill it generates to behave in an upstanding way in public far outweighs the short-term benefit of shiving someone else. You know, he doesn't need this show for any reason other than, you know, he wanted to prove he could do it after his cancer scare. Yeah. And maybe there was some unfinished business, but his life is good and his life is fine. And is, you know, I think his reputation is only enhanced by that behavior. He's also not gone because he went and got after it at Last Chance Kitchen. Last Chance Kitchen's still going, as yeah. Tom likes to tell us. By the way, if you are watching Top Chef as obsessively as we are this year, highly recommend Tom Colicchio's interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. You can get it as a podcast. It was on last week. Tom is truly an impressive and inspiring leader for that industry and kind of just speaks about the way this country works or doesn't work in a way that is really, I, I found it very moving and I found it very inspiring. And he makes complicated issues seem parsable, if that makes sense. I yeah. mean, he, he, he is, he's a pretty impressive dude. And along with, you know, friends of his like Jose Andres, and obviously we've been promoting um, World Central Kitchen on the show. I, it it's, gives me a little bit of hope that there are some people in this world who can help figure out how to feed people. Yeah, uh, for which sure. Is, which isn't always uh, an issue. Well, we can wrap it up there and get into my interview with Catherine Hahn. And we'll be back on Thursday with some, hopefully another special guest. And we'll also, well, we'll have plenty of stuff to talk about by Thursday, I believe. I mean, do you know what was going on with the goths? Are you even prepared? And I'm not talking <laughs> Susie and the Banshees. Yeah. I'm talking about the barbarian invasions, baby. This week this week in history with Andy Greenwald. I love it. I'm, I'm ready for it. All right. See you Thursday, man. Great, 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 great job, Cesarean. <laughs> it is my absolute honor to welcome Catherine Hahn to The Watch. Anybody who's been listening to this podcast knows what a huge fan uh, both myself and Andy are of Catherine's work. I loved Mrs. Fletcher. I love Transparent. They're, I mean, Step Brothers is a foundational movie for me. Everything in between. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, I am just, I, it's my absolute honor and pleasure as well, my dear. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about I Know This Much Is True, which debuted last night on HBO and is from a Wally Lamb novel. It's directed and written by Derek C. in France, who's a director that I, like, Place Beyond the Pines is still, like, a really amazing movie to me. I I remember when that came out. And I was curious whether or not, what was the the hook for you to be a part of this? Because was it Derek or was it the book? Well, how did that happen? I mean, I was familiar with the book, but I had not read it. I was like you, an enormous fan of Derek's work. For me, my end was through Blue Valentine. Yeah. I just remember being, the discomfort of that intimacy was, um, I just remember being so incredibly moved and it re- it felt like, um, it felt like the kind of movie making from the seventies that I kind, you know, and the, the, you know, the, that kind of filmmaking that I kind of grew up admiring and wanting so much to be a part of always had wanted to feel as an actor, like that kind of a playground where performance is kind of prioritized over anything. Yeah. Which is still so rare. So it was between him and also then Mark, who I just have always just admired as an actor. And I just think he's one of the greatest. And through him, you know, my, my, and I just remember when I saw, I am, you can count on me and just being blown away by his crazy vulnerability as a performer. It's just like, you know, especially in this like beautiful male shell to have this like beautiful access to this deep vulnerability. And then when I read the subject matter and I, I was so 
excited and moved that it was going to be through these two incredible men was going to be handling mental illness in this way. And I knew it was going to be with such an empathetic and deep and personal, um, personal lenses that I was, I just wanted to be a part of it. I also just wanted to bear witness to Mark playing those two parts as well. And I knew it's just going to be just an actor's playground. I was, I, yeah, I just wanted in so badly. I was, cause I was, the thing I was curious about is like you, you know, you, you mentioned stuff like you can count on me. It's funny, you know, like I had, we had Laura Linney on the pod a couple of weeks ago oh, to talk about Ozark it. actually. And it does seem like you can count on me is one of those like iconic movies for, for actors where like if they saw it at a certain time in their life, or if they saw it as they were kind of like uh, getting into the business, like it becomes like this totemic, like, Mm-hmm. Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo in that movie are mm-hmm. and, and like and lots of Philip Seymour Hoffman performances too from that yes. era around Savages. there. Yeah, where it's like that becomes like the reason to keep doing it. Did you did you feel that way about that movie when you saw it? Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I, I think on a personal level, just on a family level, it, it was just that relationship, the just the scale of it, the size of it. I always still think about just that it was so small and and so specific and tiny, but yet was so spoke to all of us on such a deep level. I, I love those movies. I love those, those stories. Like those, those are the ones where you like, yeah, there's a few of those that, uh, that hit me on that, that level. The Savages was another one, Tamara Jenkins, but you mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman and again, the amazing Laura Linney. So there's, there was definitely a few of those, but yeah, his, his performance in that first was also just like, who are you? This just like beast that just like emerge. I just also when the kids are all right, like he's just an incredible fox catcher. He's just an, such an incredible performer. And um, yeah, again, harkens back to just like that kind of, you know, I'm from Ohio. Like I grew up doing theater. Like there, there's just a type of actor that's just like not precious about it. That just like gets down to business that just is that doesn't want to like over talk it or over intellectualize it, but just like loves other actors that finds so much of the performance is found in looking at the other actors eyeballs. It's that kind of like ensemble feeling. You yeah. pick up your own costumes. Like, you know, it's Midwest crap. Like yeah. that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff I like mostly love. Like that, that's the kind of, people I want to be around and make stuff with. And Derek's stuff has that feel too. But I was wondering, so when you're, you're watching stuff and, and you're, mm-hmm. that's, that's Catherine, the viewer is, prefers that kind of stuff. Is there a difference between what you kind of like, like to watch on screen versus what you like to actually perform in for yourself? Or do, are they one in the same? Oh, it's so interesting. I think they're one in the same. Like I do feel the same, like energetically, like when I see, when I see something that I'm like really incredibly moved by, I am, I think because I'm an actor, I immediately want to be in that world and make that crap. You know what I just saw recently, which I had never seen before was Snowpiercer, which is a total left turn. I'm just taking you on a left turn. (laughs) No, let's do it. It's it's fine. But I was like, oh, that is such a thinking action movie and I just was so turned on by it just the whole idea of a viewer that you're taking on this ride through that train I could not wait to get to those cars in the front like I just felt like the limitations of the train must have been such a like the limitations to shooting wise much must have been so exciting so that's a totally different genre but yet I felt like 
um, and something different than the work that I've been doing. But it, to answer your question, immediately felt like, oh, that would be fun to do something like that. Like, would be really, a fun, would be so fun. Because I, you know, I would imagine that there's like, you know, you, you might have like that kind of like, that's something I want. That's, that's like to see Blue Valentine, to see Place Beyond the Pines and to know mm. this material and to get to work with Mark. And then, man, I got to say like, the show, I, I was blown away by it, but I, I still think like it, the material is so raw. And then even mm. that first scene with you and Mark in the first episode where you guys are meeting by the van, you're just like, oh God, like the, it, like the, in, the emotional intensity and the, there's something about the way Derek shoots stuff that feels so confrontational and all, <laughs> not quite claustrophobic, but when you're making it, do you feel that intensity? Do you feel how like raw that, that, that his style is? Like, because I'm curious about how style impacts performance in that sense. Yeah. I mean, it was, I remember that, I mean, that first, that scene was the first scene that I shot and which helped a lot because there was so much to build backwards from with, with us, especially with these, with these parts in which you're kind of bobbing in and out of, of that story in there to, you know, you had to build a lot of history in a short amount of time. And, um, you know, Mark laughed at some point because I literally didn't even know where the camera was. Like, <laughs> wow. so, and it was so intense. Like the, we, and to Mark's credit and Derek's credit, like Mark, who was carrying so much as a producer and as, and as the star and the number one on the call sheet, his generosity and kindness. And just like, he's such a collaborative bird that we were able to build, he was there completely to just, to just listen and also just be there for us to, to find this like deep and really complicated history in a very short amount of time. So by the time we got to that scene, it just felt like it was just there. It was just, it just wasn't overthought. It wasn't. So it just, again, it just goes to that work ethic of just like getting, getting down to it. And so by the time we were shooting that scene, like I really had no sense of, he knew exactly where the camera was. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> right. like holding on to it, like just holding on to him. Like I, I just, it was, it was incredibly, um, you, you just, when you're in it with, with those guys, like you just hardly have time to come up for air. Like when you're in it, you're in it. Yeah. And that's like thrilling, 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 thrilling. So yeah, he, you know, Derek loves, like it's like a dream. Like you don't, it's like a real dream. He just makes it so performance um, first. So, you know, you like I, we had a house together and, and he let me go in the day before to uh, work with the art director and the, the props and the, these amazing artists to kind of put my fingers on everything and rearrange furniture and just make it feel like it was, our house, even though like, you know, I wasn't even in like, just so that you feel that texture. Yeah. Yeah. And you really do feel that it does something. So it doesn't just feel like you're walking on. You just don't feel like these scenes with the wallpaper and the background and the light and the whatever, and the piece of weird art just kind of is stuck there. And the actors are in front of it. It just feels like it's one in the same. It's just like, it means something. And, um, it also gives an actor that kind of um, autonomy of being so that you you really arrive on the set with incredible confidence of who you are and what you are going for. And I, I don't know why an actor would, or why a director would want anything less than that. I mean, also, he's like, every actor in this, though, it blows my mind. Like, it just, 
think you get to see so many incredible performers doing things that they don't usually get a chance to do. Rosie O'Donnell's so amazing. Yeah. Archie's incredible. I love Juliette Lewis so madly. Like Imogen, every Rob Hubel, everybody's so good in this. Um, and that's such a testament to Mark, like also being so generous, giving so, um, so much breath and Derek to everyone else's stories. You know, I mean, it's something that's probably like the degree of difficulty of playing twins is it's off the charts. Like, cause mm. it, it, I guess like if it goes wrong, it's so wrong. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of breathtaking when you see them in the diner scene to at the first point, like you're just like, holy shit, he's playing two people at once. Like this is really happening. Like were you yeah. w- witness to like, because I've I've seen the first uh, two episodes, but were, did you get to witness much of the mechanics of shooting Mark in those two roles at once? I I was mostly there for um uh, for Mark when he was Dominic. Mm-hmm. So, but when there was when w- there were scenes with the both of them, then I was then there for his double, Gabe, right? Who was opposite Mark? You know, who's the stand-in for whoever whatever twin was not there and. Um, this gentleman, Gabe, who's an incredible actor and learned all the dialogue for both twins, who's such an unsung, invisible hero of this too, was like Mark's acting partner for all those scenes. And he was an, also just like an incredible, huge part of this process. And if if Mark, you know, I think was meant so much for Mark to have such an incredible acting partner, for you know, to work with and yeah. all those scenes. Yeah. That's- but, yeah, Mark, Mark. It was like incredible to be able to shoot. Like, for example, like I would be, sh- I would shoot this very intense scene with Mark. He would be give so much, and then I would look at the call sheet and see how much more shit he had to do that day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was so intense. And then yeah. look at the rest of the week and be like, oh my god, like how do you? I just it was so so much. But um, yeah, he's a, he's a miracle. Did you spend much time with the novel once you had signed on to do it? Because I, I was wondering whether or not there's like a tricky thing when you're doing an adaptation and you have that source material where, you know, if, if it is a novel that does a lot of the sort of investigation into the interiority of people, you kind of get a cheat sheet of how to play the character, but it also mm-hmm. maybe colors the lines in too much because you're like, oh, okay, like I'm essentially just executing this menu here rather than filling it in myself. Wally Lamb was an amazing um, collaborator in this as well, because I know he had told Derek that he was like, this is, you know, I want you to make this yours. And so I think what, when I read the novel and then the adaptation, what I took away so much was that even if all of the storylines couldn't be, I mean, it's a beautiful, dense 700 page novel. And so in order to like consolidate it, you know, some things were going to have to be, let go of but what was essential to it what was kept I felt so deeply was just the feeling like the essential the feeling and um like the essentials just were were so intact and in place and so I went after I read the novel I did put it down because I felt like it was I wanted to just meet Mark there in what this was I think and meet Derek there in what this was and so like a couple times we did look back at it just to like reference and make sure we were um, on the right path but for the most part i think that what we the bible was then the adaptation like it was just a sure yeah 
I'm trying to think because you did I Love Dick, but was were, have there been others that you've done that where like the book is this? Have you ever done a, a piece where the like source material has this much of a kind of like weight to it in terms of how beloved yeah, well, this Mrs. book Fletcher is? Mrs. Fletcher did too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Mrs. Fletcher did too. I've, I've done a bunch of adaptations. Yeah. Mrs. Fletcher for sure. And it's also, an, it's always an interesting process because then it's like a threefold process for the novelist, for the writer, yeah. for the, you know, the source material, but um, because, it, you know, they have to see their piece go from from theirs to then another writer to then the actor. So they see it like kind of released like in a threefold way. It must be like an interesting experience of seeing it take shape in that way. But um, yeah, so I've had, I've gone through it a couple of times. You, you know, when you, if we could take a step back and just kind of, look back at your your kind of career it's it's just a, such an interesting you can kind of like read the last 20 years of movies and tv through the 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 job like the roles and jobs you've had because you've done everything from like blockbuster comedies to you know these strange almost like experimental level like uh comedies like uh just you know quick appearances in in uh like stuff with rob hubel and 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 then you've done network tv and you've done these sort of more, I think what people would call prestige TV, but are, you know, just beautiful pieces on their own. I mean, you did my favorite episode of the Romanoffs. I mean, um, then you mm. do, you know, there's like movies like afternoon delight slid in there for you. Like, are you at a point where you're doing the work where you're like, you're viewing these, these roles that you're doing and these jobs that you're taking as responses to one another, or is it always just like, this is cool and this is what I want to do right now. Or do you ever think like I did Mrs. Fletcher, I'd like to do something different than that next. I think it's more the former. I think it's just like when it just like, I, you know, it's sometimes that happens to be because of what I just did. Maybe that someone sees me for this next, but I think it's more the, the former. It's just like, I just think whatever, I mean, it's been a real chaotic journey, Chris, Ryan. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a very, <laughs> I would never have thunk it that it would have unfolded the way it has. It's been so bananas. But I, I think um, it, it really, you know, I love doing a big, those big blockbuster comedies so much. And um, I love taking a big swing in those things. And um, as much as these tiny little, some weird shows that last a season, <laughs> yeah. but I, but I'm, um, uh, and I'm, will be so happy to be able to keep swinging back and forth, all of them. So, you know, I don't know. I like taking a risk. I'm not afraid of it. I, I am so grateful and thrilled that those stories are still being made and told and, hopefully they'll they'll keep being told so yeah no it's not like a grand plan and i'm certainly not like like trying to like make a narrative for myself in any way but i i'm thrilled with the things i've been able to do for sure but i would imagine like you know when you first started started appearing on tv and crossing jordan and that's like that was like a seven season yeah, run, right so one. yeah and that was kind one. of the paradigm back then that was like yeah well maybe i'll get a hospital show and i'll be on that hospital show for for the better part of a decade, right? Like, or maybe I'll do a cop show and I'll be on a cop show for the, the better part of a decade. And it's so different now where you might do a six episode limited series for one streaming service. And then what is essentially a mini series for another. And then you might be in a Marvel thing and then you might do a voice work thing, but that's like what acting is now. 
Yeah, I mean, and honestly, that is kind of what I was the most excited about when I was graduating from school way back when. And I, I remember like, I mean, Crossing Jordan was so fantastic. And I'm, I was so grateful to have, like, that was like my camera boot camp. honestly. I'd like never yeah. really done anything like that. So, and um, those people were all like my first family when I came out to LA. And, um, but the seven year thing of it was a long time. It was a long time. And I was, I mean, again, like gratitude, gratitude, gratitude for it. But it was, that's a, it's a long time. And you, but you're right. It was a big, that was the paradigm like that you wanted to get on a procedural. Yeah. And um, that was a long, a long shift. I'm, but I'm certainly, I think more like in my, in my, like, you know, makeup cellularly, like I'm more of definitely like an actor for hire. Like I'd rather do the gigs that are like, that I can like slip in and out of yes a little bit. But, but that being said, I'm glad I had that experience for sure. Love those people. And I love that trip. Do you remember when it started to shift at all? Like maybe not like both for you, but also like in the air, it felt like that change started to really materialize. I don't know. Like, I guess it was about, what is it? What is it now? I don't even know what, what is time right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what's happening. But I think it was. <laughs> but I, I guess it was like, I mean, I I know when it was for, you know, this life over here. It was I know it was when I had after I had my my son. It, it felt like it started to shift for me. Like a couple years, he was like a couple years old, and then I know that I it started to feel different that I that all of a sudden I didn't wasn't asked to be playing like um it was maybe because I was getting older and because like those jobs just weren't happening but I just remember going from like the best friend shift like it's shifted out of best friend to pregnant friend right to whatever friend to just all of a sudden I was just like now I could just be like a whole person and was being asked to be a whole person and it was by mostly women filmmakers and the stories just started getting more interesting. And so that started happening and that that sort of started a different shift, I guess. Like around Afternoon Delight, maybe like 13? It was definitely Afternoon Delight. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, I I remember. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. No, because I remember no seeing that. No sense of dates or time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 2013. Yeah. Yeah. No, I because mean, I remember seeing that and being like, what a great, that that movie reminded me of of movies that I kind of grew up seeing in like the nineties, like indie movies when, you know, I would first start going outside of the multiplex to see movies. And it was just like this incredible small human story that was so fully realized that you were just like, Oh, they still make movies like that. That's just so important. I love that experience. Like, yeah, that was the, that was the, the absolute turning point for me. Yes. If you were asking in terms of like when the limited, limited all series, I have no idea, but like for me in terms of my little life, that movie was like the, the, the biggest turning point creatively, personally, like on so many levels, that little three and a half week shoot was um, a game changer for sure. For sure. I just hadn't been asked to do that. It was, it started like that whole group of people too, Jill. Yeah. That, and then that whole group, like, our DP, Jim Frona, our costume designer, our set designer, like everybody kept continued on um, together for a long time too. And that was a, that's an incredibly, I mean, Jill put together such an incredible group of human beings. Yeah. Um, it seems like that was like a, that's a pretty profound like working 
working community that you, you all yeah. put together. Yeah. For well, sure. I, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you've been watching while we've obviously all been mostly at home, you know, for the last couple yeah. of weeks. Do you find yourself looking for escapist stuff to watch or like more confrontational things to watch or like what, what's what's sort of been on screen for you? It's interesting because it's been a little bit of both, to be honest. Like there's been, you know, we just we're, we were chatting before this about The Last Dance and I've just been really, really enjoying that. Yeah. Um, school. Uh, we were in school in Chicago around the same time as that went down. So at the beginning, you know. And but you're from Ohio. Were you a Cavs fan? Yes, I was a Cavs fan <laughs> for sure. Um, and then my husband, as you know, is from Seattle. So yes, last night was a hard, hard, heartbreaker for him. <laughs> but um, uh, we've been watching that. But then we have also been watching like some crazy documentaries. We've been really watching this this show called One Strange Rock, which was on a while ago. But we've been so we've been trying to watch stuff with the fam as well. But then we've been watching a lot of horror. Like I just mentioned, Snow. And Snow, like yeah, action yeah. and the host, we've been watching all of, but we, and then we've been watching, um, yeah, for some reason we want to like, we've been kind of leaning into the dark over here. I'm not quite sure why we're trying to just like embrace that. But, um, but <laughs> well, it's nice to feel like re real fear instead of just like a dull yes. fear. Yeah. I think that's why, I mean, my son is 13 and a half and I just remember this is kind of, that was the age when I kind of was into horror. And so it's kind of fun to experience it with him. Um, have you guys been going like Halloween or is it not there yet? We saw Nightmare on Elm Street together, which was real yeah. fun. Um, we saw Silence of the Lambs. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of scenes I'm, in there that, that are maybe even 13 year olds might be like, what are we watching? <laughs> like Mother's Day. That oh was my God. Mother's Day viewing. <laughs> in the morning with my two and a half year old son it was, no, we've, we've, we've definitely fast forwarded through a couple of scenes yeah but you know it's a slow burn it takes a while to get into it yeah but boy oh boy are those humans good in that movie i yeah, love that movie so that's the we we did a rewatchables pod about that a, a couple a year or two ago and it was just i it's basically like a perfect movie you know it it's so good from He's the so second it starts it. yeah oh god brooke Smith is so good, everybody. But yeah, we, we just watched that weird documentary that's pretty fantastic called Spaceship Earth about yeah. the biosphere, which is yeah. kind of amazingly perfect releasing right now. So that was really fantastic. So yeah, we've been watching a little, and then I've been watching a lot of like Criterion stuff, which yeah. has been really fun, movies that I haven't seen before. And I've been doing a lot of reading. So it's been, yeah, you know. That's good. Not, well, those are some good recos so. in there, though. That's that's some good stuff. Spaceship Earth, I, we got to talk about on the pod so, soon because I think of a lot of people. Yeah, really it's crazy. It. There's a Steve Bannon uh, appearance in that that's pretty surprising. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll look out for Steve. We'll we'll keep our okay. eye out for him. Um, I was like, whoa, <laughs> Catherine. Didn't thank expect you, it. Thank you so much for joining us today. This uh, was so my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and congratulations on on the show. It's really remarkable. So it's 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 a really cool piece of work. Oh, thank you so much. And please stay safe and sane. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>